I was born uh, Monday, April 9th, 1979. Nothing really notable about that, that day. I mean, Rudy from The Cosby Show, she was born that same day, but nothing really notable happened that day. What if I was born on, on July 4th, 1776, or uh, maybe December 7th, 1941, or maybe May 16, 1983, when Michael Jackson first did the moonwalk on TV? Those are more notable dates to keep in mind. April 9, 1979, a good date, but I had no choice in the matter. I was born at Ephrata Community Hospital, a perfectly good place to be born, but it's not, say... Uh, St. Mary's Hospital in London, where the royal babies were born. Not quite the same. I was born in Ephrata. Nothing wrong with Ephrata, but it wasn't, say, Aspen, Colorado, in the, the Rockies. I had no choice in my birth. When, where, how, doctor, midwife, cab driver, I didn't choose. Here's my point. God chose. All the details were God's sovereign choice. I had no choice in any of it. God and I didn't sit down and have a conference and negotiate the, the terms of my birth and life. It's simple. God unilaterally chose. I'm glad he did. Our, our physical creation strongly parallels our spiritual creation. When we talk about the covenant of grace, when we talk about God's promise of redemption through the one serpent slaying seed, God is to be applauded. Because all the details are his sovereign choice. The covenant of grace is entirely God's initiative with human beings who broke his covenant of works. God planned, God purposed, God chose, God moved, God acted, God covenanted, God gave, and God worked. Just like God is the giver of physical life, God is the giver of redemption and spiritual life. And if we want to understand the covenant of grace and the nature of God's marvelous plan of redemption, we must look closely at Abraham. Abraham, a central figure in God's plan of redemption. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we cannot fully understand the gospel and what it means to belong to Christ unless we know what it means to be an offspring of Abraham, heirs of promise. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are inviting us deeper and deeper into the beautiful mountain range of the gospel. May God open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ in the gracious Abrahamic covenant in case you get nervous that I don't do a lot of Bible exposition in this particular sermon, uh, just, just know ahead of time that I'm setting up the stage for much important Bible exposition. Consider much of, of this sermon a long introduction. So we have review first. I said in week one, my aim in this series is to show you that God's sovereign covenants are the key to understanding Scripture. That's still my aim. I want you to see how covenant theology emerges from Scripture and showcases the beauty of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. Covenant is the prominent and beautiful thread weaving through the tapestry of Scripture, bonding the various parts and details, and throughout, God is revealed as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping 
God. Covenant is both explicit in the text and it's implicit in the text and gives cohesiveness to the whole gospel story. We must admire and cherish the beautiful gospel inside the frame that the scripture itself gives us, the frame of covenant, covenant. During week one, I also introduced to you three huge unifying themes that weave throughout the entire series, God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace. I also presented God as one, three, and relational, meaning there are three persons in the one God, and each person loves the other two persons eternally and perfectly. This one triune relational God stands at the center of covenant theology. Week two was about God revealing himself to us in the Bible. The main point of week two was the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word and special revelation given to his people so they can be saved through Christ, reconciled to God, know God intimately as loving Father, and delight in his intra-Trinitarian love now and forever. Weeks three and four address God's sovereignty presented in two paramount ways. God's absolute supremacy or his absolute reign and rule in and over everything, and God's absolute efficacy, or his absolute power and ability to do as he pleases. In other words, God has a good plan, is working out his good plan, and nothing can thwart his good plan. In week five, I mentioned three big covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. We focused on the covenant of redemption which carried us into the eternal counsel of God. There was an eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant among the Father, Son, and Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, the Father designed redemption. And the Son agreed to accomplish redemption, and the Spirit agreed to apply redemption to God's chosen people. Now, Pay close attention to this. Could be confusing, but it makes perfect sense, I hope. The covenant of grace, or the gospel, is simply the covenant of redemption completed in time and space. The biblical doctrines of predestination, election, foreknowledge, and God's giving a people to his son to redeem only confirm the covenant of redemption. Week six took us into the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2, where God made a covenant in Eden with Adam as the representative and federal head of humanity. The covenant of works is law. Obey and live, or disobey and die. The sign of the covenant of works was the tree of life promised to Adam upon perfect and perpetual obedience. Week 7 was Genesis 3. Sobering. We saw how Adam broke the covenant of works, and because he was humanity's federal head, we broke the covenant of works in Adam, leaving us totally depraved and apart from Christ, dead in our sin, guilt, and misery. The covenant of works still stands today, except we are unable to fulfill it. We can't obey perfectly. We need a rescuer to come and to keep the covenant for us. Then in week eight, we moved into the covenant of grace. 
in Genesis 3.15. God preached the gospel in Eden. Adam and Eve heard God promise an offspring, a son who would rise up and he would suffer and he would ultimately conquer sin and Satan and death bringing redemption for believers. Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of the covenant of grace, which is then ratified in the Abrahamic covenant. And the covenant of grace is still in effect today. It has been since Genesis 3.15 on. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And that's Genesis 3.15 on. There is one story of redemption and one people of God who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we see that in Scripture alone. Week 9 was the Noahic covenant which God made with Noah, his family, and all living creatures. It was not a saving grace covenant. It was a common grace covenant. God promised to never again destroy the earth with a flood and to preserve the earth so that the promised offspring had a stage upon which to work his incredible redemption. The Noahic covenant promises great blessings to both believers and unbelievers apart from anything that they do or have done. And God gave a sign of this covenant as well, a beautiful rainbow in the sky. God will remember his covenants and God will keep his covenants. Now, we've covered so much and we're scratching the surface, folks. Uh, So I don't anticipate that you would remember everything. I'm not going to remember everything, and I'm preaching it. But do remember this. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God worthy of our trust. Remember that. Now that's review. Before we unpack Genesis 12, I want to draw your attention to four things that help frame the covenant set up with Abraham. The Abrahamic Covenant. Four things to help frame the Abrahamic Covenant. Number one, the structure of Genesis. Number two, the importance of Abraham. Number three, correct the notes here, my my bad, not Marsha's bad. The Abrahamic Covenant, a window to the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic Covenant, a window to the covenant of grace. And number four, a question, how do you view your salvation? Number one, the structure of Genesis. Genesis begins the gospel story. Genesis sets the stage for Christ. Therefore, whatever Genesis emphasizes will be important in understanding redemption in Christ. Genealogy is big in Genesis and Scripture in general. Why did God put long genealogies in the Bible? They're not particularly fun to read, amen? I mean... They're a little tricky to go through all these names that we can't even pronounce anyway. Well, one big reason was to confirm the trustworthiness of God's promises, particularly his promise of the serpent-crushing offspring. Genealogies add to the drama of the coming conquering seed and authenticate that seed's identity. Genesis 1 through 3 introduced creation, Adam and Eve, the fall, curses, and the gospel. Genesis 4 presents... Adam and Eve's offspring, namely their male offspring, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Where do you think that's pointing? What's Genesis 5? Adam's offspring until Noah, hundreds of years are covered very quickly, emphasizing offspring. 
Then what? Genesis 6 through 9 cover Noah, the flood, the Noahic covenant, and Noah's offspring or sons. Are are you seeing the trajectory of Scripture and Genesis? Genesis 10 and 11 address the offspring of Noah's son, many clans, languages, lands, and nations, and the Tower of Babel. The rest of Genesis, from the end of Genesis 11 to Genesis 50, 40 chapters of the book are dedicated to what? The history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what? Their sons. And covenant is central to the patriarchs. The rest of the Bible refers back to the patriarchs and the covenant promises that God made to them. Okay, number two, the importance of Abraham. Scripture connects Abraham directly to the gospel, the gospel. So, of course, Abraham is going to be a central figure in covenant theology. Abraham is mentioned by name 72 times in the New Testament alone and is vital to Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. Understand Abraham, and you will understand the gospel so much better. One theology book described Genesis like this, quote, The first 11 chapters are an overview of ancient history, a prologue leading up to the central character of the story, Abraham. Once Abraham is introduced, the speed of the camera slows down, as it were, And the narrator focuses on the covenant that God made with him and his offspring, a covenant that is central to the plot of redemptive history and the unity of the scriptures, end of quote. See, the structure of Genesis tells us what's most important in Genesis, the line of Abraham. The line of Abraham, the the Abrahamic covenant is central to redemptive history, and, and it helps us rightly interpret the rest of the Bible, and it deepens our grasp of the gospel and the one story of, of redemption for the one people of God. The Noahic covenant, it's gracious, but it's the Abrahamic covenant that explicitly fleshes out the terms of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace began in Genesis 3.15, but is ratified in Genesis 12.15 and 17. John T. Rhodes said this, quote, The promise to Adam and Eve of a serpent crusher has usually been seen as the moment the covenant of grace began. But it is with Abraham that the terms were first fleshed out. End of quote. The Abrahamic covenant and its terms help us understand the gospel. Without a firm grasp of Abraham, you won't really understand Paul in Romans, in Galatians. You won't understand Hebrews, three pinnacle books which exposit the gospel of Jesus Christ and help us apply the gospel now. Abraham is key. Abraham is big, and without him, your view of your union with Christ will be at least somewhat diminished, if not a lot diminished. Now, am I overstating this? Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You, You need the Abrahamic covenant to make any sense of that statement. 
You just can't do much with it without climbing back in to Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It's the same thing with Romans 9. You can't make sense of Romans 9 without Abraham. So Genesis 12, 15, and 17 in particular are big when it comes to getting the gospel right. The gospel. We're talking about the gospel in the Old Testament. Okay, that's huge. Abraham is integral, is vital to understanding your union with Christ. So let me ask you a question. Are you a son or a daughter of Abraham? You can only answer yes if you trust Christ alone for salvation. And if you answer yes, by all means, you should know what it means to be called a child of Abraham. You can't botch that up, or at least you shouldn't. So here's what I'm getting at. We have to get Abraham right. We have to get Abraham right. The core of the Abrahamic uh, uh, covenant is the gospel, pay close attention now, is the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's at the core of the Abrahamic covenant. The gospel doesn't begin in the gospels, it began in the garden and was amplified in the Abrahamic covenant. There are deep and rich colors and contours of the gospel which Abraham helps us cherish. And my aim is to help you see and to help you enjoy the gospel more deeply in and through the Abrahamic covenant. Three, the Abrahamic covenant, a window to the covenant of grace. John Calvin explained this well. Listen very closely. The covenant made with all the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is so much like ours, that's the new covenant, in substance and reality that the two are actually one and the same, yet they differ in the mode of dispensation, end of quote. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace administered in the old covenant. The, the, the covenant of grace is administered differently in the new covenant. Same covenant, same covenant, different administration during different times of history. And I think that will become clear. If that went over your head, as we continue to go, that should flesh out more and more as the series continues. Now a question, number four, how do you view your salvation? Again, this is just framing the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Four, How do you view your salvation? I think, my opinion, the predominant emphasis in mainstream American Christianity is self. Self. Just call it selfie Christianity. There you go, kids. Have fun with that one. I chose. I believe in God. I accepted Christ. I follow God. I have purpose. I have meaning. I'm searching for God's will for my life. I, 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 me, my, mine. It's self. I I heard a song on WGTL the other day that was less than helpful. Um, I I had to bring Christina in from outside. You got to hear this, honey. In an attempt now to encourage broken people, which is an admirable attempt, the chorus sings, you're beautifully broken. Okay? I can make some sense of that theologically, but my brokenness is neither beautiful nor praiseworthy. Jesus is conforming me into his beautiful image so that I'm no longer broken. My beauty is him. 
not my brokenness. And then it sings with audacity, you're worthy. No, I'm not. I am not worthy. Christ is worthy. Jonathan is not and he doesn't need to be told that he is. This kind of thinking is everywhere. It's a poison in Christianity. We are not the center of the story. Christ is. Abraham is one massive illustration of how God takes initiative in salvation and gives his grace apart from anything man does. God acts first. I'll be very tender on this point. Even most people's view of baptism, and we'll get into this in the near future so it fits, is thoroughly self-centered. I am being baptized because of my profession of faith and a decision that I am making to follow Jesus. That does not picture the gospel. The Abrahamic covenant, it helps protect us against selfie Christianity because it demonstrates that God takes initiative with us and he brings us into covenant with him. Our view and practice of baptism should follow that gospel thought. God is acting. John T. Rhodes, he helpfully said, there's nothing particularly special about Abraham. (laughs) Isn't that great? Until God bursts onto the scene in Genesis 12 to make some outrageous promises to him, there is little to make him stand out from his brothers Nahor and Haran. And that's rather the point, he says. With the covenant of grace, it's not that people make themselves into the kind of people God approves of and then he lets them join the covenant. Rather, God out of his own grace comes and chooses people who have done nothing to deserve it and enters into covenant with them. End of quote. April 9, 1979, right? The Abrahamic covenant tells of God coming to sinners, entering into covenant with them, and lavishing his grace on them for his glory. People don't come to God. God comes to people and draws people to himself to find in him their greatest joy and their pleasure. They come because he came And drew them. Do you understand? Now we turn to Genesis 12. That was supposed to frame Genesis 12. Now we're going to dig Genesis 12 apart and see if what I just set us up is any good. This is God's sovereign grace in action out of all the nations and all the people on earth. God chose Abraham. Ten quick points, and and I have to move quickly. Number one, God gave Abram life. Terah fathered Abram, or Abraham. I'll use Abram and Abraham interchangeably. I might mess it up. It's hard to do that, but same guy, all right? God gives life. Number two, God gave Abram a wife, and she was barren. In Genesis eleven twenty nine, 29, Abram took a wife named Sarai, or Sarah, and verse 30 adds that she was barren. That's an important detail to the story. If God was establishing his covenant with Abraham and his offspring, how was that going to happen if Sarai is barren? When we hear barrenness and she had no children, we, we, we should be thinking, uh-oh, how's this going to work out? How's this going to unfold? And that's the beauty of God's sovereignty. When man can't do it, 
God shows up and does the impossible in order to fulfill his promises. The promised offspring would absolutely come through Abram and through Sarai. And there's more to that story. It gets ugly. Three, God brought Abram out from Ur to a promised land. Genesis 11.31 describes Terah and his crew, his cronies, leaving Ur of the Chaldeans to head toward the land of Canaan. God called Abram out of Ur and was sovereignly and graciously leading him into the land of promise. The Lord said in Genesis 12.1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God was effectually calling Abraham out. And God would take him and show him the right land. Now, this can be a little confusing. I was getting confused, and I I hope that I have this right. But God's effectual call of Abraham came when he was in the pagan land of Ur before heading to Haran and eventually Canaan. Genesis 12, if you will, is a flashback into Genesis 11 when he's still in uh, the land of the Chaldeans. Now, how do I know that that's true? Because when you read it, it doesn't seem to read that way in Genesis. How do I know that? In Genesis 15, verse 7, God told Abraham this, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. possess. And then if you jump to Acts 6, uh, Stephen preached there that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before living in Haran and entering Canaan. So what I'm telling you is Genesis 12 is a picture of what happened back in Genesis 11 before he even left Mesopotamia. Here's the point. God elected Abraham, came to Abraham, spoke to Abraham, and sovereignly brought Abraham out of Ur to Canaan in order to give it to him and his offspring. But uh uh-oh, there's someone living there already, the Canaanites. That's a problem. And guess what? God's going to take care of it. Because he's making a promise. Our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Number four, God spoke to Abram. Verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, God took initiative to speak to Abram. Was was Abram pursuing God? Was he deserving of God's call and God's blessing in his life? No, we see just the opposite. God has taken initiative to bless Abraham apart from works. I'd like you to see three promises here that are important to the Abrahamic covenant, and we'll see them again. Number five, God promised to make Abram a great nation. Was Abram negotiating at this point? Was he contributing to this deal in any way? No. Abram deserved God's wrath if you study it from from Adam and the fall until Abraham. He deserved God's wrath and judgment. But in God's sovereign plan and in God's sovereign kindness, he unilaterally promised Abram blessings and God bound himself by his own word, his own oath, his own promise, his own covenant. He bound himself. God would make Abram into a great nation, which is repeated in Genesis 17. One study note on Genesis 12, 1 through 3 said this. These verses mark a pivotal point in Genesis and in the history of redemption as God begins to establish a covenant people for himself in fulfillment of the promise he made in chapter 3, verse 15. The covenant people of God started in the Garden of Eden. The gospel was preached in the Garden of Eden. 
That's key. Is the Abrahamic covenant ultimately about the nation of Israel and a piece of property in the Middle East? Absolutely not. No. Yes, the nation of Israel came from Abraham. That's important. Yes, there was land, the promised land. That's important. But there is a greater Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, there is a greater nation of believers united to him by faith who have obtained a greater eternal land in Christ. It's pointing us somewhere. God's promises point us far beyond the nation of Israel, far beyond real estate in the Middle East. And it points to Christ and his people who are united to him by faith. It's always been about faith, never been about ethnicity. Well, that's it for now. Second promise, number six, God promised to bless Abram and make his name great. Verses two and three. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Notice God's choice of words. I will bless you. I will bless you. Abraham didn't deserve it. God's just giving it because he wants to. God took initiative and and promised to bless Abraham and we've heard this concept of blessing before in the Genesis narrative. Notice that God would bless Abraham. Abraham, there I go, so that he would be a blessing to the world. Considering it's the Hebrew imperative there, it could also mean be a blessing, as in a command. Receive my blessing, now be a blessing. It can can be that way too. So here's a question about verse 3. Think about this. Who will God bless? Everyone? Everyone? No, only those who bless Abram. Will God bless anyone who dishonors Abram? No, God will curse them. Just like Genesis 3.15 here, two sides are emerging. Do you see it happening? We've seen this concept before. One will bless Abram and be blessed. The other will dishonor Abram and be cursed. And that is a very thoroughly covenantal idea. The covenant relationship between God and Abraham is so intimately gospel, God and Abraham share friends and enemies. All right, seven. God promised to bless all the families of the earth in Abraham. This is key, folks. The phrase, in you, is significant. It sounds a lot like what? The the, the new covenant, in Christ. That's what it sounds like. One must be connected to Abraham to receive God's covenant blessings. But Genesis 12 is so much more than just temporal blessings, temporal land. It's all about this earth and this world. That's not what it's about. It's also about and ultimately about redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. The the phrase, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is repeated in Scripture after this point. Here in Genesis 12, please get this point, it connects Abraham directly to the gospel. Directly. Scripture does this. God's plan of redemption has always been about more than ethnic Israel and land in the Middle East. Listen very carefully to Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's huge. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations 
be blessed. The New Testament uses nations. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I got a question. Do you understand, Paul? Do you understand what he's doing with Abraham and the gospel? God preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to Abraham, a gospel that was always for the nations, all the families of the earth. Ethnicity has never been the point. Middle Eastern real estate has never been the point. It has always been about faith in Christ and heavenly blessings in him. And everyone who shares the faith of Abraham is an offspring of Abraham and blessed along with Abraham, whatever their nationality. The Abrahamic covenant gives gospel promises of blessing when the condition of faith is met, and it promises curses when the condition of faith is unmet. Abraham is part of the church. He's a brother in Christ. He was back then. He is now in the presence of Christ. But Abraham was the church of the old administration of the covenant of grace. Do you understand? There's a new administration of it now and in the first century. He was under the old administration, same covenant of grace. The Reformation Study Bible is helpful here. It says this, Abraham will play a vital role in the process by which God's blessing will come to the families of the earth. Later, this will be extended to involve his seed, eventually coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, and in the spiritual seed of Abraham of all ages united with Christ. That right there is so precious to us. We're in Christ, and the promise is for us as we are in Christ. It goes on, this spiritual seed is not made up of all ethnic Israelites. Rather, it includes only believing ethnic Israelites and believing ethnic Gentiles. Those who are not of faith, be they ethnically Jew or Gentile, do not inherit the promises of God. End of quote. God's plan of redemption has always been about blessing believers from all the nations forever in Christ. That's, that's been the picture. Number eight, by God's grace, Abram put his faith in God and obeyed. Verse four, so Abram went. By God's grace and by faith, Abram obeyed. Can, can you see in the text, brothers and sisters, how Abram's faith and obedience followed God's sovereign grace. Abram received, then he responded. This is very important. Faith and obedience flow out of God's sovereign grace. Hebrews 11, 8 and 9 confirm that Abram obeyed by faith. In the face of his wife's barrenness and against all odds, Abraham obeyed God by faith. Why? Before Abram ever trusted and obeyed, God elected him, came to him, and spoke to him. The order there is very, very important. Election, grace, faith, obedience. Number nine, God appeared to Abram and promised the land to his offspring. Now, you got to keep in mind, uh, Sarai was barren. She had no children. This is a problem. Yet God promised him, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. To your offspring, to your children, to your seed, I'm going to give this land. God had a good plan. Second, offspring is collective. We've seen this before. Collective singular noun. 
It could refer to one single group of descendants, or it could refer to one person. Was, was all this about the nation of Israel and land in the Middle East? Well, consider Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises of the covenant of grace were given to Abraham, yes, to his physical offspring, yes, but they were ultimately for Christ, the serpent-crushing offspring of Eve and Abraham, but it goes even further. It was for everyone in Christ by faith. So if you're united to Christ, the promises for him are for you. You. How do we know the Abraham covenant is about much more than Israel and real estate in the Middle East? What, what was Abraham anticipating by faith in Genesis 12? Consider Hebrews 11, verses 10, 15, and 16 for a moment. Verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That sounds heavenly and that sounds celestial. Referring to physical descendants of Abraham, Hebrews 11, verses 15 and 16, add this. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God preached the gospel to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and he was saved in Christ. Abraham was looking to the heavenly and eternal blessings in the coming seed, and we are in the seed who came. Different perspective. And in Abraham and in Christ, we too are guaranteed this great and celestial inheritance This is the covenant of grace, but you see, Abraham differs from us because he received the covenant of grace in a different time, in a different administration before Christ. Same covenant, same gospel, Genesis 3.15 on. Last one, number 10. Abram built an altar out of gratitude for God's grace. God came to Abram, appeared to Abram, spoke to Abram, gave grace to Abram, What do you do if someone does something kind for you? You smile and you say thank you. How did Abraham respond to God's lavish grace? He built an altar in gratitude and worship to God. The the most fitting way to respond to sovereign grace in your life is thankfulness, gratitude. Folks, Genesis 12 is exciting It's really exciting, and it paves the way for us to to see beautiful things in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. So so what's our takeaway real quick? Well, I hope that you've been applying this all along, and you're able to make the connection without me having to spoon-feed you the application, but maybe this thought will be helpful. April 9, 1979. Saints, when we were dead in our sin, buried beneath a mountain of guilt, suffering in our misery, God took the initiative and he redeemed us. Brothers and sisters, like Abraham, God chose us, God pursued us, God called us, God rescued us, God changed us. Our faith and our obedience to Christ, get this now, is a kindly given response to our Father's sovereign and effectual grace. 
How should we respond to God? It's, it's quite simple, really. We smile and we say, thank you, thank you. We allow the spirit-provoked and passionate gratitude and joy in our hearts to explode in a spirit-filled life of holiness and righteousness and purity and obedience to his law. Don't try to pay God back for his grace. You can't pay it back. Instead, just express your love, express your thankfulness to God by presenting yourself daily as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Allow gratitude for sovereign grace to compel you to fight sin and obey God joyfully. Enjoy God's grace so much that God's prohibitions are unthinkable for you. What must you know to live and die truly happy? Well, how great your sins and misery are, how you are delivered from all your sins and misery, and how you are to be oh so thankful to God for deliverance. Gratitude is a glorious response to grace. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for your clear word. Thank you that your spirit is guiding us into all truth. I ask God that you would work in Jerusalem church to help us make sense of sometimes very difficult things. We lose the details. We don't see how this connects with that and that connects with this. And and God, we need your help. So I pray for sovereign grace to come and to lead us. God, help us to comprehend. Help us to observe well, to interpret well, and to apply well. Help us to just think of Of our natural birth, we had nothing to do with it. So our spiritual birth parallels it, God. It is you. You came to Abraham. You set up a covenant with him. You gave him a great sign to signify that covenant that you set up with him. A sign that would mark believers from the Old Testament on and would change in the New Testament, God. I pray that that our church would look to the Abrahamic covenant and its parallels to the gospel and we would get it, that we would not miss Abraham, that we would get Abraham right. God, help us to see it. Bring unity in these things. I know that there are different perspectives on this theologically, so I'm, I'm just begging you, God, to bring unity to our church and that if we don't get on the same page, help us to love like crazy and to be patient with one another. We love you, God. We're here to worship you. And we're on the same page about Jesus, at least those of us who have faith. Those of us who don't, God, I I call them by your holy word to believe and to know you as an almighty father, that they would come and turn from their sin and trust in you. So give us, God, a, a sense of unity in the gospel and help us to respond now with spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.